Hey, if you think you might be lost because you got lots of new thoughts, I'll be informed. Or if you're feeling like a fool, cause you've been used just like a tool since you were born. Hey, if you're trying to get through life, then friend, I've got some great advice for not growing horns. They say that ignorance is bliss, but if you knew, then you'd be pissed, so get informed. Hello and welcome back to Getting Informed, a leftist lit podcast. I am Colin Orton, he, him, and with me is... I am Allison Grophy, she, her, ooh, we're doing pronouns now, and with us is... Anna McGarry, she, her, yay! yay. <laughs> Anna McGarry is the lovely host of a certain podcast. Give, give us a, an elevator pitch, Anna. Um, well, it's a little something called Anna McGarry Knows Everything. I engineered it so I cannot be replaced. <laughs> podcast where, where me and a guest talk about art. We've done books, TV, movie, musical, etc. Anything, and we get on and off topic. It's big fun. Ugh. Incredible. Do you <laughs> really know everything? I really do. Ugh. Then I have to sing. <laughs> who will take all my opinions from, from now on? Yeah, and I got like a double feature with Colin that's really off the rails. It's pretty Ooh. fun. <laughs> we talk about Warhammer. What is this, a crossover episode? It is, yeah. Is, <laughs> yeah. Ever since we've done that, I just get a text every now and then from Colin, and it's just a little Warhammer update, and I'm like, ah, <laughs> ah. It's, it's like all the Warhammer culture war. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like Marxism versus... Versus... Uh, the other one? Dank. Ah, Grimdank. Yeah, the, the Arch Warhammer scandal where a prominent Warhammer YouTuber was outed as a literal Nazi. Mm, well, we'll talk about being outed as a literal Nazi and how that can affect your political standing <laughs> in today's book. Making Sense of the Alt-Right by George Hawley. For today's episode, we are reading chapters one and two because the book splits pretty neatly into six chapters. So we are reading chapters on the alt-right's goals and predecessors and the first wave of the alt-right. So, uh, opening thoughts, Anna, uh, as our honored guest. <laughs> uh, let's start from the beginning of uh, the intro. We've got, we've got our book open here. What, uh, guide us through uh, Hawley's, Hawley's rhetoric here, Anna. Oh, mama mia. <laughs> um, well, he starts off with, uh, what if I just read the whole introduction? It's a little like this, guys. Verbatim, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's trying to say. <laughs> As I started reading this, I was like, I should take 30 pages of notes. And I was like, I'm not going to because I don't want to. I'm going to consume everything I can. And I'm going to know that Colin is going to have the notes. Oh, boy, does he. Most of my notes... Uh, to get spicy right off the bat, are where I disagree with George. Oh, really? Mm. Yeah. Okay. Like, can you because give us- Because I think that George Hawley is too nice to mainstream conservatives. Okay. Uh, and here's why. Quote, we can see elements of the alt-right in pre-existing movements, including mainstream conservatism. In this chapter, I will discuss some of the right-wing currents that made their way into the alt-right. That's like, he does acknowledge that the mm -hmm. alt-right shares some of its traits with mainstream conservatism. Yes. However, he continues, 
As I examine the alt-right's political and ideological genealogy, I must make one clarifying point. Although I see parallels between the alt-right and other right-wing movements in the United States, I am not suggesting that they are driven by the same underlying ideological premises. When I say that the alt-right, libertarianism, and conservatism have some features in common, I am not suggesting that either of those more mainstream ideologies share the racial animus and anxiety present in the alt-right. Okay, so you're saying he's not found you're saying he's distancing modern conservatisms too much from the alt-right yes a little radical uh i have uh, i have the quotes to support it <laughs> uh holly continues the alt-right rejects the three major premises of the conservative movement the so-called three-legged stool of moral traditionalism economic liberty and strong national defense None of these conservative shibboleths seem to interest the alt-right. We'll get back to that. If you I would say that racism is a pretty traditional view, though. What is? I'd say that being racist is a pretty traditional thing in this country, oh, though. Oh, we'll get you know? to that one. <laughs> She's right. Oh, no, yeah. Boy, oh, boy, do we find out exactly how much America is built in and functions off of racism. But... I think you're maybe, okay, do you want to finish your thought before I reject you? Uh, he, Holly says, uh, and I quote, the alt-right is not just a new style of right-wing politics. It is completely distinct from conservatism as we know it. And I say that that is fully horseshit because I say that Nazism is the logical conclusion of modern conservatism. I don't know about that. You ever heard of the business plot? Enlighten me. We'll get to it. Continue, uh, go, go on your point. This, I'm just, me. No. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm, I'm uh, uh, seeding and payoff. I'm, I'm introducing points so that okay. I, can, I can pay them off later. Okay. Uh, do you have any points you would like to seed, Anna? Um, when talking about like conservatism and like the Republican Party as it is today, I'm often stuck between like the ideological basis of conservatism versus what we have today because they're very different things yes yes you know because i think if we're looking at like what conservatism is or should be or once was i feel like there is more distance between that and like alt-right but in the present day there's more it's closer you I, would, know? I would also say that fascism isn't that's a little unfair of me to say that fascism is the logical result of conservatism. It's yeah, not, be very careful. It's the logical result of capitalism as a whole. Um, and we'll get into that because capitalism relies on class. You need a working class that are just above poverty in order to maintain a capitalist hierarchy. Okay, but you, what does that have to do with conservatist ideology? Race. How do you enforce a working class from within? divide and conquer. There are actual, anti-black racism was invented to justify slavery. There are documents that suggest this, literally okay. dating back to like Benjamin Franklin's fucking um, like diaries, where we can see the racism among slave owners or okay. human traffickers, as they should you know, more appropriately be called, growing more intense as the economic necessity for slavery increases. And by economic necessity, it's not necessary. It's just that people were making money from doing so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. While that's true, you 
you haven't exactly given proof that that ties into a conservative ideology. The book tries to evidence that, and we can discuss that, but you're making a lot of big claims before we even touch the text. Um, so do we want to actually like get into what the introduction says yes. point by point? Yes. Okay. <laughs> he begins like, whoa, boy's already spicy in here. Yeah. Um, he begins with like a introductory look for someone that might not know at the 2016 presidential election. Um, Imagine being that lucky. <laughs> if you're lucky enough to have slept through the entirety of that election, you saint you. Um, <laughs> but it's really brought, brings you right back to 2016 and goes step by step how Trump came to power and um, immediately introduces Pepe. Brings right into this is an internet ideology formed on the internet, influenced by the internet, and exacerbated by internet troll culture. Yes. But it's interesting because we just read Ur Fascism by Umberto Eco, and you see him immediately, like Colin said, distancing modern conservatism. Oh boy, that's a mouthful to say. Um, distancing modern conservatism from fascism, Nazism. Be conservatism? Yeah, but there's a difference between modern conservatism and he uses the word conservatism, or that's am true, I dying inside? A little bit of both. <laughs> it is very hot, and uh, me brain be melting out of me ears. Anyway, please, I've interrupted you like four times. Continue. <laughs> well, in relation to Umberto Eco's ur-fascism, he is trying to use the finger-thumbs argument. He's saying that modern conservatism is not alt-right, but that the alt-right and modern conservatism share qualities in the same way that Umberto Eco says that not all fascist regimes are the same, not all totalitarian yes. regimes are fascist, and I would argue not all conservatives are racist, Colin. Like, you, no, you, you I would got say that, there pretty early. I wouldn't say that conservatives are racist. I would say that their ideology is built on racial fear. Okay, and we can get into, <laughs> how, we can get into how he introduces, how Holly introduces that concept. <laughs> but the introduction basically outlines the rise of the alt-right in response to Trump and exacerbated by Trump and what makes the alt-right so different from any conservative movement that we've seen before. Mainly that they reject, like moral traditionalism and the American identitarianism. They have identitarianism, but it is racial identitarianism. Yeah, it's not. Now, my thing is, the concept of the American identity is highly racialized. The idea, American identitarianism is a white identity. Mm. Like, you see it all the time. You know, the president literally makes references to, like, who is a real American and who isn't. And that American exceptionalism, it, I, I find it highly racialized. It's, it's, a, it's a white supremacist concept in and of itself. Yes. But for now, let's try to distance the modern conservatism movement with our racist president's racist rhetoric, you know? Because not all conservatives do agree with Trump. No, but the conservative establishment does all it can to empower him. Agree, but we should build to that, you know? <laughs> Anna, thoughts? <laughs> what are my thoughts? Girl, <laughs> um, <laughs> me too. Yeah, I mean, we can say that the alt-right isn't about, like, the traditional, what we consider the traditional conservative, like, pro-America, patriotic thing. They're not that in, like, the same sense. No. But I think when generally when people are talking about like America and patriotism, they are talking about white people mm -hmm. and like a very narrow lens. And I think 
that's just more evident. Like they don't, in the alt-right, it doesn't seem like they try to pretend like it's anything other than that. Like in the wider, more conservative movement, people are like, it's not, it's not about that. It's just about America. And you're like, but who is America though? Like, what do you... Well, I'm not saying that conservatives as a whole are not racist, but I'm just saying there's like... Uh, Holly actually has a quote later on that hopefully we'll touch on because Lord knows if I remember where it is, where he um, sort of tries to make a distinction between people that are maliciously racist and people that are passively racist and don't understand that they're being racist. Because, like, yes. a lot of people are racist by fucking tradition. That's how they were raised and they were never taught better. So, like, if those are, those are people that can be changed. Those yes. are people that can, like, shift. I mean, even the most vile hammer fist, or hammer skin, even the mm-hmm. most vile of the, the Texas hammer skins, uh, or mm. can, is reformable. L- yeah. Like, every human being is savable. Yeah, so it's just, like, that's, I think, partially why Holly put such an emphasis on not labeling all these conservative movements the same. Yes. To emphasize um, that all readers of this book, even if you happen to identify as one of these conservative labels can learn and change. I think another mistake that Holly makes is saying um, uh, on page five, he says, uh, the alt-right's radicalism is also apparent in the degree to which it rejects other basic American values. He talks a lot about Republican values and the values of the modern GOP. Mm -hmm. And it is demonstrated time and time again, as I've written in all caps beneath that quote, that I think it's foolish to believe that the modern GOP believes in anything at all. I think it's foolish to assume that they have a guiding ideology. Well, right now we have a little bit of idol worship with the modern GOP, and that they're going to back their man no matter what. I don't even know if it's idol worship. Have you ever heard of, oh, I'm a fool. Uh, You're oh, a fool of a took. Christian exceptionalism. Uh, it's the idea that uh, uh, Christians are the real Israelites. Explain. Uh, it's a Christian ideology that took off in England in the late uh, 19th century and then exploded in America. And the idea is essentially that the real chosen people of God are Christians and that the Jews are the children of um, Eve and the serpent. Ew. Biologically, how would that work? Unclear. Uh, Nazi stuff is like, re- it's all horny. It's all really mm. horny. Um, but like... It's, it's, it's this Christian ideology mm-hmm. that is super popular in right-wing circles. Okay. Where it's a, it's a theological defense of white supremacy that emerged at about the same time as other white supremacy. Okay. That's just such a doozy. I just... <laughs> and there, there is a name for it, but uh-huh. I'm a, a fool. Um, but yeah, it's... Uh, Read read any uh, book on like if he gets into this, I will gain respect more respect than I already have for uh, Holly because mm-hmm. he he might get into the theological justification of these abhorrent beliefs. Yeah, well, for now I respect him. I mean, I, I respect the man. <laughs> yes, I just think he's a bit of a lib. Well, yes, this book was written in 2017, and he was trying his best to seem like a logical, even level-headed. Like, he even says, I love this part, because anyone that critiques the alt-right or right movements has to say this about themselves at some point. In the introduction, he says, 
I was faced with a dilemma when determining what material to quote from figures of the alt-right. If I filled every chapter with the most shocking language that can be found within the alt-right, many people could reasonably accuse me of spreading its worst propaganda in an academic forum and of quoting terrible people who do not deserve to be noticed by anyone. On the other hand, if I only quoted the most reasonable and erudite supporters of the alt-right, I could be justly accused of whitewashing the most appalling aspects of the movement. So he says, of the two choices, I generally opt for the latter, which I admire. I admire that he's trying to approach them. Like he's not punching down. down. <laughs> he's yeah. not taking the stupidest of the stupid, most appallingly, blatantly racist, like. I mean. While still acknowledging that all that racist nightmare stuff, there's plenty of it going around. Oh, like, yeah. Like he's very clear about that. He's like, I don't need to repeat it all here, but know that it's happening and there's a lot of it. <laughs> mm -hmm. And even in the coda at the end of the introduction, he's like, so I said that there were no alt-right violence attacks. Um, I'm wrong now. Uh, there had already been three deaths uh, associated with the Nazi group Atomwaffen by the time he wrote that also. So even the coda... Even the coda is inaccurate. Um, wow. Adam Waffen had been assessed. They hadn't technically killed anybody, but suspected members of, of Adam Waffen had killed each other. And then uh, shortly after that coda was written, there was a double murder by an Adam Waffen member, as well as the uh, the leader of Adam Waffen being uh, stopped with a rifle and 500 rounds where he was going to perform a suspected mass shooting. All of that was in 2017 before Heather Hare was killed at the Unite the Right rally. Man. Well, the, the, the double shooting in Florida happened afterwards. Uh, that being the instance of violence he mentions in the CODA. Yeah. yeah. So we're learning and changing information. <laughs> yeah, while leaving, it seems like from this CODA, the bulk of the text unchanged from when it was printed. He does put the CODA in like, you know what, maybe I... I didn't see this coming, gave them a little too much credit that they weren't gonna be violent and start killing people, so that's on me. <laughs> I do respect. I'm glad that he like led with that. Yeah. I feel like I want him to like go through and like really like not redo the book with the new information, because it is such like a constantly changing thing, especially with it being such an internet thing. It's always also, moving. But the alt-right like went away after it didn't went away, but the, the alt-right hid underground again in, after twenty seventeen. Like the Unite the Right rally failed miserably in its uh, in its goal of uniting the alt right as one fascist national party because they were you know larping in fucking Waffen SS uniforms and a woman died and so they sort of had a mask off moment there too early but as of 2020 they're fully legitimate. I mean, NYPD officers were flashing uh, white supremacist hand uh, hand signs during the George Floyd protests. Uh, yup. So, as we are well aware, this is the darkest timeline. So, let's dive into how George Hawley begins his discussion on the alt-right's goals, their rise to power, their uh, first and second waves, and just how much they are tied into the internet and to troll culture with chapter one. Also, Al, I cannot thank you enough for being the person who keeps us on track. Keeps you on track. <laughs> and as being an angel. Fair. Looking <laughs> <laughs> rock on. Girl power. Dylan's not here. You can't hide from me now. <laughs> Alright, so chapter one. The first thing Holly makes sure to say is that as he knew it at the time, in 2017, the alt-right could scarcely be called an organized movement. That is probably changed in some aspects 
I would doubt, I would say that there's still not an overarching, like one community for all facets of the alt-right little branches, but there is definitely more leadership involved. I would say, I would say they've become more legitimized and people with this ideology are more comfortable in the public sphere. I would say that the alt-right as a political organization is shattered after, after Unite the Right. They are, Mm -hmm. they are like underground, constantly infighting. Um, uh, We'll get into some of, some of the infighting because uh, he might bring up Matthew Heimbach uh, and the National Front and the Traditionalist Workers Party. But if he doesn't, um, there is a beautiful example of uh, alt-right infighting nicknamed the Knight of Wrong Wives. The, uh, the National Front and the Traditionalist Workers Party call themselves National Socialists. They, they call themselves Nazis. Um, and the Knight of Wrong Wives is just a clever reference to the Knight of Long Knives. Okay. But it's it's an example of Nazi infighting that we'll get to if this book mentions Matthew Heimbach. Or Heimbach. Okay. Because he was super... He was one of the guys who organized the Unite the Right rally in 2017. Well, I doubt this book is going to touch on that then, since he doesn't reference the events that happened at the rally. No, but the Traditionalist Workers Party and the National Front were both incredibly influential in those circles leading up to that point. All right. We'll see. No spoilers. (laughs) No spoilers. Um, Well, uh, as we said, chapter one, uh, page... 11, 12, one of the first things he does is make sure to make a distinction between the word white nationalist and white supremacist. To someone, Anna, do you want to dive into the difference and why it's important? I have the book on my phone, which kind of blows. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm just, like, having a hard time. Boy, boy, do I understand that. Well, I guess I, guess I could say not so much... He, it's not so much why the distinction is important so much as why white nationalists think it's important, mm-hmm. which is always masking the real threat of their ideology. Um, white nationalists prefer to call themselves white nationalists to white supremacists um, a little bit because they don't think white supremacy goes far enough in terms of what we should do. All, here's the thing. One of the first things that Holly says is all the alt-right's goal is to create a white ethnostate. Mm-hmm. And as such, white supremacy doesn't go far enough because white supremacists believe that, oh, we can all live together as long as white people are dom, dom on top. But um, white nationalists want to literally create a white ethnostate with no people of color, which they think is an important difference. But I would say one implies the other. I mean, not all white supremacists are white nationalists, but all white nationalists are white supremacists. Yes. Yeah. It's interesting. He he gets into this more in chapter two, but talking about, like, their branding and the language they use around themselves and how it's... It's interesting when any organization like this is like, no, that's not what we want to call ourselves. Like, those aren't the right words because the conservative movement has been so like, not PC, bleh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love the section about the Ben Shapiro. Um, when we get into when he talks about how conservatives are being called hypocrites by the alt-right for distancing themselves from the alt-right. Yeah, because... Okay. Actually... They're using that same like, no, no, no. Like, no, they're the bad ones. But then you're like... Yeah, it's just the same kind of argument that's been used against them that they're critiquing and now they're using the argument because it's convenient and you're like, mm. okay. 
I loved the headline that he pulled, which was, oh God, I hope I can find it. I'm going to just paraphrase for now. He pulled a headline from an article that was Ben Shapiro called a snowflake by people that are more racist than Ben Shapiro. Yeah, as, as the headline of a piece by Robin... Pinacia noted in Gawker, Ben Shapiro declared a social justice warrior by people more racist than Ben Shapiro. <laughs> I love that. So that's justice. Well, fun fact about Ben Shapiro and ethnostates. Mm. He defends Israel as an ethnostate, of as a concept. <laughs> um, and like this is Ben Shapiro is one of my major examples in the fact that like traditional conservatives, as they're called, mm. have the same ideology. They just are better at wearing a mask. Uh, I have here a list of Ben Shapiro quotes, many of which are from an article that he wrote in, I believe, 2003, entitled, The Radical Evil of the Palestinian Arab Population. Quote, the Palestinian Arab population is rotten to the core, end quote. Quote, but in the end, the blame for, like, how Palestine is getting brutalized must lie with the Arabs themselves. Quote, the Palestinian Arabs have demonstrated their preference for suicide bombing over working toilets, unquote. Oh. Quote, Palestinian Arabs must be fought on their own terms as a people dedicated to an evil cause, unquote. Oh. A tweet from Ben Shapiro, quote, Israelis like to build, Arabs like to bomb crap and live in open sewage. This is not a difficult issue, unquote. Oh my goodness. Ben Shapiro is an open and flagrant racist. Yes. He just does yeah. it in a culturally acceptable way. And that's the difference between tr traditional conservatives and Nazis. I don't think Ben Shapiro is necessarily a traditional conservative either, though, because he's more like neoconservative or like... He's, he, well, I mean, tr traditional conservative as like a mainstream accepted conservative. Okay. The New York Times writes think pieces about him being on the intellectual dark web. Like he's... He is, he is accepted as the new face of modern mm. conservatism. And he is, he is all for Israel as a Jewish, parentheses, white Jews only, and parentheses, ethno state. He wouldn't say that, but he'll say that about the Arabs of Palestine. Yeah, he'll say everything but the very openly thing that we've all agreed, we can't say that anymore. So he's just, like, finding the new racist way to do it, just updating the language. Oh, mm -hmm. yeah. It reminds me of a book I recently read, uh, White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide by Carol Anderson. Mm. So good. Basically just, like, history of racism in America. And it's like, oh, you thought things got better now? No, they just changed. Like, it, mm -hmm. we just adapted our racist systems and the way we talk about race. Like, Are, are you familiar yeah. with Lee Atwater? I recognize the name. He was uh, one of Ra uh, Ronald Reagan's major advisors. Ronald Reagan oh. also listed as a traditional conservative. Mm -hmm. And Lee Atwater, I'm going to censor this because I'm not a monster. Lee Atwater said the following, quote, you start out in 1954 by saying N-word, N-word, N-word. By 1968, you can't say N-word. That hurts you, backfires. So you, stay, so you say stuff like uh, forced busing, states' rights, and all that stuff, and you're getting so abstract. Now you're talking about cutting taxes, and all these things you're talking about are totally economic things, and a byproduct of them is blacks get hurt worse than whites. We want to cut this is much more abstract than even the busing thing, uh, and a lot more abstract than N-word, N-word. This is modern conservatism. 
That's Ronald Reagan's advisor. Well, if the boot fits, Mr. President. <laughs> and I, I don't know if everyone, like, who's all in, like, the busing taxes, I like to think they're not 100% aware That's of how racist those policies are in action. They are unequivocally, but I don't know I would say the, like, intent aware. or consciousness. Not that it really matters that much. Yeah, obviously race isn't a deal breaker or they would have sniffed out what's wrong with these policies and made it a deal breaker. But at the same time, I like to agree with you, Anna, and that's why I'm so hesitant to make all of these parallels between just to like outright blatantly call her, because I understand the institution of modern conservatism, yeah. obviously built upon racism. They even mention busing, states' rights, uh, redlining would Economics. be an example. Yeah. The electoral college, basically. Well, yeah, that um, was designed by slave owners for slave owners. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So there are ways in which, yes, racism is built into the conservative like way that they see the world should be run. But boy, oh boy, should we be careful. <laughs> and not call all conservatives implicitly and willingly and maliciously racist. Oh yeah, no, I would just say that like, as uh, Hawley says on page 40, mm -hmm. most immigration restrictionist groups focus heavily on economics, especially on the supposed downward pressure that mass immigration puts on wages. Mm -hmm. They often argue that undoc uh, undocumented immigrants receive more in government services than they pay in taxes. These are empirical statements and can be disputed, but they are not directly connected to race. And I'm just going to abstract that with, uh, with Lee Atwater here. But all these things you're talking about are totally economic things, and the byproduct of them is blacks get hurt worse than whites. Yeah. Yeah. Like, they, a lot of people have learned to distance themselves from explicitly talking about race because they know they'll get called on it. Mm -hmm. It's just when people have to think, like, two or three steps farther, then, then it's about race, and then they feel more comfortable talking about that. Or maybe... Obviously not in Lee Atwater's case, but maybe not even thinking that it's about race. Not to really harp on this, but John Ehrlichman, uh, who was a Nixon advisor, said the following regarding the war on drugs in an interview uh, with Dan Baum in 1996. Quote, you want to know what this was really all about? The Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know what we were, uh, did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. Yeah, I've heard that quote before, it's a doozy. It's. Mask off, modern conservatism employs all of the same prejudices and tactics as the sort of overt fascism that these uh, young men are advocating. Uh, just Ehrlichman and Atwater are better at hiding it. Mm. Until those pull quotes where they're like, you know what I, you know what I would like to say? You know what I've been thinking this whole time? <laughs> you know, I'm going to just uh, put the mask off for a second and give you a little uh, sound bite for your uh, real talk little. here. <laughs> Just girl things. Well, and that's after they've retired. <laughs> ah. These guys aren't doing anything anymore. They have nothing left to hide. They've lost their last testicle and they have nothing else to lose. I'm just going to tell it all. Okay. How about do uh, Anna? Huh? Anna, my darling girl, would you like to discuss with me on the way that Holly makes sure that sex and gender is almost never brought into his discussion of the alt-right? That is something I would say is a criticism of mine. 
Yeah. That is definitely something I've noticed. He mentioned um, a couple times that, yes, all of these men are obviously anti-feminist, but we're not going to focus on that right now. And I'm like, why not? A little bit. Yeah, and it's not that we have to focus on, like, every single thing or give it all equal time, but hmm. it's interesting to for him to say, like, their main thing is race, all they care about is, like, race and racism, which is true, but then also being like, also, they, like, super hate women and feminism, and I think at one point he even says their gripes are specifically with, like, first wave feminism, and you're like, the first wave? Like, voting, maybe? Like, they don't... <laughs> Yeah, and I think, I don't know, going into that even, like, a little bit more, I mean, just as a woman, um, (laughs) I, (laughs) I don't tend to take kindly to the, to just it being trivialized, and I get that's not, like, his focus in this book, but still when it is such a big part of it, like, if you're gonna be super racist, there's probably a lot of other old shit. You're like, these are also my ideas, you know? Like, those tend to go together, your old-timey views. Um, and my my worry in him trying to bury the lead on exactly how sexist, like, the alt-right ideology is, he's focusing on the racism, and I respect that, and I agree it's very prescient, especially modern. And But the thing is, a white ethnostate that functions like economically and socially as an all right person wants would make all women broodmares basically and restrict rights to women in a way that like I don't think can be ignored when we're talking about because he really emphasizes the impact that an alt-right ideology would have on people of color and everyone within a nation if they tried to create a white ethnostate and never talks about the fact that also well he talks a little bit religious he talks about how religious freedoms will be taken away but, like, doesn't talk about class yet. He hasn't mentioned women yet. He references the book The Turner Diaries. Yes, oh, quite often. And The Turner Diaries touches on that. Uh, okay. There is a scene uh, in The Turner Diaries. I believe it is a scene called The Night of Rope. In The Turner Diaries, uh, essentially the plot is gun control gets enacted across the United States and gangs of roving black men start terrorizing the population and doing a lot of raping of white women because... Because this is written by a raging racist. Because this is like... It's an alt-right fantasy novel. It's it's Birth of a Nation, but again, Mm. but modern... Uh, and like so the the Turner Diaries of the main character Mr. Turner um, (laughs) you're a pirate Mr. Turner uh, joins a terrorist organization called The Order uh, Mm -hmm. who launched terror attacks against the United States government throughout the novel Uh, Mm -hmm. it is believed to have inspired uh, several bombings including but maybe not limited to the Unabomber Uh, (laughs) that's a big old name um, but uh, there's I believe it's called The Night of Rope uh, where he walks down the street and there are bodies lynched hanging from every light post. Uh, most of them are black men, but many of them are white women who have been labeled as race traitors. This is framed as a good thing, actually. Well, the whole book frames mm-hmm. the creation of the ethnostate as a good thing. Uh, the uh, the book ends with the use of nuclear weapons against majority black cities. Yeah. That's how it ends, and this is framed as a good thing. And they all live crappily ever after. Like, the end. That's that's the book that these people are like, this is like my Bible. Except not anymore, because uh, every person who talks about that book nowadays is an FBI agent. 
Like if you show up to a white supremacist rally and you're like, have you guys read the Turner diaries? They will kick your ass out because it's required mm-hmm. reading, but it's such entry level required reading that like you're an F you're a fucking narc. You're a normie. You're a narc if all you've read is the is the Turner Diaries. Oh, you've only read the Turner Diaries? God, that's fascism 101. Well, Gosh. also because the Turner Diaries is super violent and like murdery. Mm. And so if somebody comes up to you and starts talking to you about the Turner Diaries, they're trying to identify you as a potentially violent terrorist. Like like <laughs> when you ask a girl if she listens to Girl in Red? <laughs> like basically I'm glad you guys got that reference <laughs> <laughs> oh god I just started listening to Girl in Red I sat down and I listened to all of her songs and I was like huh. Anna I you listen to Girl in Red huh ooh <laughs> <laughs> or like back in the Tumblr day ooh. What, like in Tumblr when they said the Tumblr call sign was I like your shoelaces thanks I stole them from the president you none of you were on Tumblr in the early two thousands. It's no. okay. Our audience of boomers will support me. <laughs> we have someone out there who gets that joke. <laughs> okay. Oh, there was one more thing I wanted to say while we we're talking about women. I think it's important when we're talking in like general groups, even something like oh, we're talking about the alt right. I I don't know if he's done enough to talk specifically about who these people are like in the group saying it is like mainly a bunch of angry white men and I don't know if that's like coming like how they got here why how we can like stop them from getting there to say like oh the alt-right like wants this like wants like this white ethno state and you're like okay but yeah I don't know I think it's important to bring perspectives and like things like class and gender into it because it isn't just like, oh, it's good for the alt-right, so then it's good for, like, white people, because that's not it for them. That's not enough. The, ah. In the book, Everything You Love Will Burn by Vegas Tenold, um, they talk a lot about, um, well, that's a quote from Matthew Heinbach. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Uh, that's talk about the book. The most inclusive alt-right group that he, he implanted in alt-right groups for five years. Um, and the most inclusive one that he implanted with was uh, the Klan. Uh, that was the most inclusive uh, group toward women. Jesus. Because it was a lot of wives and like a lot of like daughters of the Confederacy types. <laughs> Just like, oh, my husband was extra racist today, so I made him a big pot of Well, no, like he, he befriended these people and like went to their wedding. Oh, oh my God. There was a cross burning at their wedding. <laughs> you know what blew my mind? That cross burnings weren't a thing until Birth of a Nation came out. People saw it in a movie, and they're like, "I like the racist thing in that movie. Let's do it in real life." And Don't people say home, media kids. doesn't have influence. I love America so much. <laughs> Listen, video games are why I'm violent. Let's get into it. <laughs> I listened to Girl Red, Girl in Red once, and now I'm gay. I don't. I know. I read happened. a single book. I'm gay now. I don't know. Thinking super gay. I cackled when he talked about Gamergate because I knew that he was going to talk about Gamergate. I want to get into that. That's actually where I wanted to lead to because we have to start discussing this, guys. Also, um, he talks about irony a lot. Yes, as, and like memeing. That's what I was about to say. Go for it. So, in the passage right before he gets into. So most of chapter one is discussing the predecessors of the alt-right and where they pull their influences from. Before he gets into that, he has this long passage. It's basically, what does the alt-right do? And what makes the alt-right different from other movements is that they're funny. They try and make themselves charming and edgy and, like, nihilistic. And they do that through memeing and through 
relentless trolling. And in the predecessors movement, he talks about Gamergate as an influence for the alt-right and the way that they debilitated the site... Gawker? Gawker? Yeah, uh, I think it was Gawker. Um, Mm -hmm. They just relentlessly went after these, like, three female journalists for daring to apply criticism from, like, a moderately feminist perspective. Actually, they're, they're pretty good. But, like, they applied a single feminist criticism to a video game, and that was, like, enough ammunition. And then there was one minor scandal where, like, there was some conflict of interest. Like, there was a game designer who, like, slept with a games journalist, and then she was, like, nicer to his game or whatever. They acu- No, they is accused... So, or is that something they accused yeah. of? Yeah. All the book says is like that they accused a woman. Yeah. And that's yeah. all they talk about, I, if I'm remembering correctly. He doesn't get into them critiquing journalists for viewing things through a feminist lens. That was, that was like the preamble, essentially, from, from yeah. the research that I've done on the matter. It's, it's a lot of, but no, uh, Hawley does not reference that. Oh, yeah, which I thought was interesting. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was so interesting, and especially because he references it as like the first big win for this group of people that now sees that trolling on the internet has power. Also, you can shut someone down with trolling. There is a massive overlap between gamers and conservatism. Hey, as a gamer, um, I'm offended by your insinuation. Just because like gamers tend to be white dudes in their 20s or 30s, uh, which is already kind of a conservative group. Mm Mm-hmm. And there is a little bit of uh, a pay entry level to be a gamer because you need a a computer capable of running games, which is a fairly significant investment. Yeah, yeah, she was, Jesus. So there's, it's it's sort of this like middle class and up relatively white and male group, which already is a pretty conservative demographic. It's been getting better. It has, like the diversity within the gamer community. And that's not by accident. And it's always been good. People have been fighting tooth and nail to increase diversity Mm -hmm. in gaming. Well, there's always been a lot of diversity in gaming, but it's just like hasn't been publicized because of the mass of white, sweaty gamers. I am one of them. I'm one of you. If you're listening, I am also sweaty. (laughs) And spend so much of my time in front of a small screen. Um, but I really liked that passage about Gamergate because it's basically one of his first big appeals is what he says to the alt-right. And that's, that's not just him, actually. A lot of uh, people who do, like, hist- historiography uh, of the alt-right credit Gamergate as, like, the origin of the troll movement. One of the things that I find really interesting is the way that kids on the alt-right use irony as a way of fielding racist views. Because, Mm -hmm. Anna, you can't get mad at me if I say something racist because it was just a joke, bro. And you're the bad guy if you get mad at me. Why are you so sensitive? I'm joking. (laughs) It's a prank, dude. I'm just just saying the most, like, purposefully inflammatory things. Like, if I deny the Holocaust on a 4chan board and you get mad at me, that's your fault for fucking being a a lib cuck. It's your fault for falling for it, you idiot. (laughs) And you're like... But but if you don't get mad about it, my next joke is going to be about how much the Jews uh, have benefited from Holocaust denial. And then if you're not mad at that, we'll see how far we can take this. Yeah. And there have been concerted efforts by certain neo-Nazi groups to infiltrate very specific online communities, generally gaming communities, communities like uh, Warhammer subreddits, 
and communities where young uh, men like bond over just having been broken up with are mm-hmm. saturated with Nazis because they wait for you to either feel isolated because you're a nerd, which like fair, or to be emotionally unstable because you've just been broken up with. Or for a woman to have hurt you one time. Yeah. One time. Fourth grade, Becky. (laughs) One time too many. And now the Holocaust didn't exist. Hold it back. Hold it back. (laughs) Oh, my God. My neighbors are going to call the cops. All right. A woman hurt me one time. And now I... (laughs) Fucking vile. Boy, if I had a nickel for every time. (laughs) For every time a woman hurt me one time too many. (laughs) (laughs) You're right. Um, But yes, so these are ways in which the alt-right can make itself appealing to youth. This has been an episode of Getting Informed, a Leftist Lit Podcast. Tune in next week when we continue our voyage into Making Sense of the Alt-Right by George Hawley. So, I bet you know uh, that the majority of these episodes were recorded in late August and early September of this year, which is now about... Uh, two months ago. That being said, uh, there is news in this show. We do we do cover news segments, and uh, they, just given the backlog in our production schedule, will be a little out of date. However, we are quickly uh, slurping up our uh, backlog, and so we will be up to date within uh, probably a couple months. That being said, uh, we are, if it's not evidently clear... We are amateur podcasters, and the sound quality is not yet um, what we'd like it to be. And it's it's much better in these little things because uh, I have I have here my my reliable microphone. But I think I think uh, Zoom compression is an issue that I've been trying to finagle my way out of. But we'll we'll see what happens there. Regardless, uh, tonight is the night of October the twenty fourth, twenty twenty. The election is, if I am not mistaken, nine days away. Yep, nine days away. And uh, we are hurtling toward uh, the brink of fascism in this country. Um, Now, I hate to uh, get spicy and take a stance, but for the love of God, man, just, just please vote. Just please bite the bullet and back Biden, man. I know it sucks. I know it sucks. I almost puked when I filled in the name, the little bubble next to Josephus Bidniano, 17th of his name. But it'll buy us some fucking time, right? So get out there. Vote. Um, Try not to become a doomer because it doesn't do any fucking good. And uh, we're working on the audio quality, and I'm really thrilled with the reception that this podcast has gotten over the past two weeks and uh here's two two more weeks and many more after that i love you all and for the love of god stay safe